Hello, and welcome to Design Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia. The idea behind Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research. So exercise physiology, exercise metabolism, and exercise and health. And what I'm really wanting is for you to get your exercise information from the research experts rather than from influencers. And indeed, today I'm bringing to you Professor Darren Kandow from the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. He's an absolute expert on creatine metabolism and creatine effects on muscle mass and strength during resistance training. But also he started looking at other things such as effective creatine on bone, effective creatine on cognitive function, etc. We had a wide ranging discussion around creatine. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge in the area, but also in other areas we touched on. We had a long, really interesting chat and you'll get the most out of it if you watch the whole thing or listen to the whole thing. But if you can see down in the notes, that on YouTube, there's um, times in blue that you can click on and it will move to the section you want to listen to. Or on the other platforms, you'll see that the times are there, but you can't click on them. But again, it's best if you listen to the whole thing, but if you want to jump around, that's up to you. So enjoy the chat. Hi, Darren. How are you? Welcome to Inside Exercise. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Great, great. All right. So I it's going to come out while we're chatting, but I, I did creatine stuff probably 20 years ago, including, including a study, I think, as a... I like to think of as a classic, which I haven't even published, which I think we have to do something about that. So that'll probably come up. So we're going to be talking about creatine and exercise, but also in how uh, related to health, et cetera. Um, but first of all, sometimes I like to ask, you know, how did you actually get into exercise research? I, I actually, just looking at you, I think you might've been an exerciser first, but you know, some people were researcher and then they moved into exercise. How did, how did you get, get to where you're at? It was kind of by chance as well. Uh, I was an at or I played sports growing up and uh, not exceptionally well at any of them. <laughs> and my uh, undergrad degree was in cell biology, and I was taking some classes I thought were very boring. And then I happened to have a, a chance to take an elective, and the option at my school was exercise physiology, and just so happened to be with this outstanding mm. uh, professor who really was an exceptional teacher. And at the time, okay. I just started to lift weights. I was very, very skinny. I mean, very, very skinny. And I didn't know the importance of nutrition and, and started to, to lift weights with my friends and started to get a little bit stronger. And then, of course, mm -hmm. you understand the principles of nutrition. And, and then in class, I could visualize what was happening to my own body. And then mm -hmm. I completely changed paths from uh, biology focused to more exercise, physiology, nutrition. And that really paved the way for my transition into academia and now, of course, mm -hmm. into university uh, career. So um, basically, if it wasn't for that class, I probably, I actually don't know what I'd be doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's funny, you just said something that totally reminded me of me running around the, the 400 meter track down in Wollongong. In, um, so it's about 80 kilometers south of of um, Sydney. That, that when I started studying as well, I, you'd literally think I'd be doing intervals and I think, oh, that's okay. That's just, you know, this affecting that process or something and, and push through it. And, you know, you can actually think, oh, if I, if I go faster, I'll be using anaerobic glycolysis and all that. So just putting it into practice is just yeah. really stimulating. Yeah. And then you, then you, I guess you realized, hang on, I can, I can actually work in this field or. Yeah. I got a, a more interested and then I went to do graduate school at the university of Saskatchewan. And uh, I got more lucky there. I think I work with uh, one of the best creatine re researchers, Dr. Phil Chilibeck, 
And then at the time, Dr. Darren Burke, who went into industry and, and we were doing muscle biopsies and, and we were some of the first to do the vegetarian studies to show the difference. Ooh. And mm -hmm. I got very fortunate to work with two outstanding uh, researchers. My master's was on glutamine um, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't turn out to do anything. And then, of course, as a grad student, you're very disappointed. You always want to go into it thinking you'll find some benefits. And at about the same time, creatine was really exploding. Um, around the year 2001, for me anyway, and then reading all the articles from Roger and Eric Holtman in the late 1990s, and uh, I read your paper as well on mm -hmm. IMP, and it, it was interesting just to see the transition and the appreciation uh, for the pioneers of research that don't get the press today, um, mm -hmm. if they're not on social media like Instagram, um, but uh, the people who have paved the way for most of the research we now know or the way we uh, adopt exercise and nutrition, um, you got to give kudos to the people who did the really hard work. Um, we're kind of just the messengers and uh, it is uh, important to pay the respects to those people who did it. So I got very fortunate with that as well. I think it's great you brought that up. We were actually talking a bit before I came on. We came on that um, people sort of bandy around this, you know, the goat of this and the, and the greatest of all time of this. And and we're and as well, I had Jan Modicheski on, Jorgen Modicheski yeah. from Copenhagen, and as we know, he he always talks about we're standing on the shoulder, you know, the shoulders of giants and things like that. Right. So it's it's and it's so important for people to remember all these all these legends from back. You know, Bank Saltine like died in two thousand fourteen. Some students don't even know. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah, and it, even like when it comes to creatine, there's probably 15 to 20 people, individuals that have paved the way that a lot of people don't even um, know about if they're not on social media. And I always use the example if you started a hockey team with four lines, I'd be lucky enough to be on the bench as an assistant coach. There's that many individuals who have paved mm. the way that just people may have heard about. Um, I could only imagine to be in the room with these exceptional uh, creatine researchers. Paul Greenhalf, yourself, Mark mm. Tarnopolsky, uh, uh, Roger Harris, Eric Coleman. These are just the legends who everything we know about creatine and anybody in the protein field or caffeine would say the same thing. Um, I think a lot of people uh, that are sort of messengers of creatine research or research today on social media, they seem to get all the press. Uh, but at the end of the day, the real researchers and community, and you know, who uh, are the real people who do the data collection, to be honest, there's probably less than 10 researchers left in the world who actively do creatine research. Um, mm -hmm. They collect the data and, and are doing the experimental randomized control trials. And, and a lot of people may not even have ever heard of them. So it is an interesting uh, area that we're in from the social media to the, the actual science. I think you've been quite modest. I'm sure you'd be on the on the field or on the pitch or whatever it was. But um, but uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Paul Greenhalf actually because that's that's an interesting one. When you said when you said all these people and if they're not on social media, I actually yeah. thought of Paul Greenhalf because Paul Greenhalf's not been on the podcast, but he wasn't talking about creative and he did that stuff years ago. And it's quite possible people could even know Paul Greenhalf on social media, but not actually see his creative yes. stuff because it yeah. was you know he's he's doing other things now so yeah anyway it's good good we talked about that okay so if we think about creatine um you know we obviously people think about creatine supplementation but why don't we just talk about you know what is creatine why is it important and and you know and where do we get it from it, rather than going straight to like oh how much do i need to take you know yeah. like maybe you don't have to take any exactly so this is a big uh, uh a distinction and really important so we naturally are making creatine if you have a healthy liver and kidney and brain 
right now. The average person, maybe one to three grams a day. You can also get it through your diet, primarily through animal flesh. So this is red meat or seafood. So the, the question comes up, well, if we're producing about one to three grams a day and we excrete something called creatinine at about the same level, most individuals, including vegans and vegetarians, live a long, healthy, very productive life, not needing any additional dietary creatine. So that proves the point when someone says, do you need creatine supplementation? The answer is 100% no, you don't. But then people say, what if I take more through the diet? I'm like, okay, now let's get into how much you're taking. And if you eat one or two servings of seafood or red meat a week, you're getting a minimal amount. But if you're eating two or three servings a day, you're getting way more than you probably need, especially from a muscle perspective. So who needs a creatine supplement? Well, the answer is no one. Um, however, if you do consider supplementation, that may be dictated by a lot of things. Your habitual diet, your mm -hmm. age, uh, the sex, males or females, or your physical activity patterns. Can you get enough creatine from the diet that's been shown to be effective? I think you can. Um, however, vegans and vegetarians might have a little bit more difficulty getting to that. And that's why I think supplementation is probably considered. Um, but again, this is important for everybody watching. If you said, does a healthy human need creatine? The answer is no, but you may experience some benefits if you're either a little bit low on the, uh, the, the platform, if you will, or you might get some benefits. And as you know, from your work, we, our muscles kind of have a, a ceiling of how much you can put in there. Um, mm -hmm. And if you want to fill it up a little bit more, it has been shown to be effective, but there's ways to either get it through the diet or through supplementation. All right, that's great. I like the sound of that because I, if you've seen other, I know you have seen other podcasts. I'm not a massive fan of supplements, but but mm -hmm. if anything, and I think because I was thinking when we were getting ready, I thought, okay, this is one where you could you know you could say, oh, well, maybe, but most mm -hmm. you, you just say you don't need it, right? But we'll get get to that more. What I was thinking when you were talking was something I've mentioned here and there was was we've managed to go you know tens of thousands of years without mm -hmm. supplements. Right, mm -hmm. supplements have just come along, and we've managed to survive. Okay, but but people say, oh yeah, but soil depletion and things like that. Do you do you have something? I'm sure people have said this to you. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? This the, the fact that we've actually managed to survive. Yeah. And we, I've just been in Italy, and you know the gladiators are running around, even if they're eating meat, extra meat, and then some people say they weren't. Um, they weren't supplementing. Do you have yeah, any thoughts so, on that? Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the the key is the I love the word supplement, right? So it's on top of what you're already getting, and usually you supplement the diet when you're deficient in a nutrient or vitamin, or and, and you know everybody talks about protein supplementation, and it's well established you can get way more protein than you need through food. Creatine's mm -hmm. a little different. Can you get it through the diet? Yes. If you want more, it's going to be very expensive because there's only a certain foods who, who uh, uh, consume it or if you uh, based on ethical pr principles or environment or vegan and vegetarian, but you don't need supplementation unless you're deficient. So exactly. it's very interesting. I mean, we drink coffee with caffeine for a specific stimulant, but uh, from a nutrient perspective, unless you're deficient. Mm. You're dumping in too much vitamin C, you make expensive urine. It, it's very simple that you're dumping it in and, and dumping it out. But uh, of course, we'll talk about the evidence-based research on creatine and maybe a little bit more than what you get through the diet is advantageous. But at the end of the day, five or 10 grams is a half a teaspoon. We're not talking about 200 grams like in protein world. Uh, so the amount that even if it is uh, uh, effective mm -hmm. is very, very, very small. 
Right, right. So let's let's just think again about okay. So what is creatine? So whether whether it's coming um, from your own endogenous production or you've you've had a uh, supplement, for example, what happens? So the creatine, because I mean this is one where because you know some supplements you say it doesn't even make sense because you're going to get broken down. You're gonna it's gonna you know you're gonna urinate it out or whatever. Creatine actually does end up in the muscle. So why don't you yeah. just talk about? So if you do take a supplement, for example, you know does it end up in the blood? Does it end up in the muscle? And I know we'll talk about brain and things later as well. And then how much does it go up by? And and also maybe if you can introduce creatine phosphate because because yeah. you know people are sort of thinking creatine's what's right. having the effect on on the right. exercise performance, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So when people ingest creatine, and, for, and I think for the purposes of the rest of the podcast, we're going to be referring to monohydrate because it's the most safest and effective form of uh, creatine. It's just linked to water and you can consume it in a powder or in solution or with food and goes through the GI tract intact. And it mm -hmm. actually will get uh, released through the GI tract into the circulation. And it's been well established, especially from Roger Harris and Eric, Eric Holtman, that a small dose, as little as three to five grams, can easily get into the blood. And of course, our bloodstream will act as the vehicle and bring it to our muscles. Uh, but our muscles are very strict on what gets in. Um, and it has a specific transporter or doorway. It's very similar to glucose and GLUT4 transporters. It only will allow creatine in. And once it goes into the muscle, uh, going all the way back to our high school biology days, creatine is phosphorylated to phosphocreatine mm -hmm. or PCR. And that's really the important distinction. You're consuming creatine, but through invasive energy metabolism, it gets phosphorylated. And when it's phosphocreatine, it, it's then able to maintain our energy currency of the cell, adenosine triphosphate during exercise. So the whole theory here is if your muscles had more phosphocreatine via supplementation or increase in diet, that would allow ATP to be maintained during high intensity exercise. And that's probably why some athletes get bigger, stronger, faster. They also can recover in between sets or races quicker, and that may have speed up some of the recovery aspects. So that's kind of where creatine really got its momentum for athletes to sort of train at a higher intensity, potentially recover more, and that could lead to more gold medals or an improvement in the weight room or on the track. Yeah, yeah. So that that's an interesting one because some people don't even know about creatine phosphate. Like mm -hmm. when they talk about anaerobic metabolism, right. they'll just talk about lactate. Right? They don't actually realize. So I wouldn't mind just getting a little bit of that down as well. So if you're doing like a 10-second sprint, okay, and, and just want to make sure people are clear. So phosphorylation is where you just add a phosphate. So it's right. basically creatine. You add a phosphate. It's now creatine phosphate or phosphocreatine. And that's the one, as you said, which is kind of buffer. They often use the term buffering ATP. Yes. So ATP is the immediate source, you know, for the contraction. You you contract, you you um, break down the ATP to ADP, and then instantly you can get the creatine phosphate breaking down the energy in the creatine phosphate, uh, putting the ATP back together again. And now you're back to creatine. Yeah. Now, now hopefully people understand that. Might have to play it again. But um, anyway, and that's what you're talking about. It's 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 helping to maintain your ATP levels. Now, what I wanted to talk about is, you know, what. So if you do a hundred meter sprint, for example, or even like a, a one rep, you know, maximum one RM or 10, 10 reps or something. What's actually happening to your creatine phosphate, and why would supplementing maybe help that process. Yes. Yeah, so that's an excellent point. And the other big thing when phosphocreatine combines with ADP, it buffers a hydrogen ion. Mm -hmm. So that's where one of the buffering acidosis effects. So creatine mm -hmm. really should in theory work 
the longer the anaerobic event goes, so the more seconds. So for example, at eight seconds, nine seconds in a sprint or repeated sprints, mm -hmm. sometimes we don't see an increase in one RM strength because you really haven't activated enough muscle contractions for the buffering mm -hmm. to occur. But yeah. multiple sets of weightlifting or multiple sprints is kind of when you see creatine really come to the aid of performance in the second and third. And it's primarily, I think, based on the recovering of ATP, but also we can't forget the importance of the buffering of those hydrogen ions in the bloodstream and or muscle. And that helps basically cycle because it's a reversible act, uh, reaction. So it really works spontaneously in maintaining anaerobic exercise. Probably why there wasn't much press in aerobic exercise that was long duration because people thought you're using more aerobic metabolism, the mitochondria, maybe mm -hmm. fat and uh, uh, aerobic glycolysis. I, I think creatine may have applications for recovery of some of those sports, um, but it's really emphasizing the anaerobic style of sports for sure. Right. All right. So, yeah, so you've got, so anaerobic metabolism, you've actually got the, the creatine phosphate breakdown, which does not use oxygen. So that's why it's called anaerobic. And then you've got the glycogen and, and to a lesser extent, glucose getting broken down to lactate again, not using oxygen and that's anaerobic. Now, what I wanted to get out was that the thing you touched on that, um, you know, six seconds, seven seconds. So the classic thing would say, oh, your creatine phosphate lasts for about six seconds. Yep. But then people tend to think, oh, black and white. So if you're doing a 10 second sprint, the first six seconds is only creatine phosphate, and then you start breaking down lactate. No, they both happening at the same time. Yeah, but it's actually Paul Greenhalf again that did some of those studies where they that sprint for like I can't remember exactly. There's a bunch of them, and um, also at um, in um, you know Larry Spreet and stuff like that, where they yep. looked at like three seconds of exercise, six seconds, and, and basically you're creating phosphate. You're getting energy so quickly. That's yes. been used, and if and I think you're saying if you can if you supplement by food, or or diet, uh, or, by, or by a supplement, if you can just put that creatine phosphate up, and then why don't we talk about what sort of percent you increase? Yeah, and maybe instead of six seconds, and then you slow down a bit, it might be six and a half, seven, and that could be the difference. Yeah. And as you say, with recovery. But do you want to just tell us when you take the creatine? You know, how much goes to creatine phosphate, how much stays as creatine, and, and how much does the muscle actually go up by? Yeah, that's that's important too. So there's already way more creatine in the muscle than ATP. So the concentration gradient is going to be pushing towards the regeneration. But supplementation, even at a loading phase, will only mm. increase creatine by about 20% in the muscle. And there's not a lot of room in that muscle for creatine anyway. The majority of it's water. So even a very stringent supplementation program, in addition to diet, will only cr increase creatine stores by about, let's say, 20 to 40% across the whole spectrum. And of that increase, 20 to 30% is only phosphocreatine. The rest is mm -hmm. going to be free creatine. So you don't get that much of an increase. However, to the world champion athlete or the individual who needs that one or two extra uh, seconds of sprinting or effort, that could mean the difference between a gold or silver medal. To the average individual, if you top up the, if your car is 90% uh, full of fuel and you top it up the extra 10%, great. You can go a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, so again, at the end of the day, it, the theory is the muscle can just go a little bit longer before you start to switch to those slower um, macronutrients such as fat and aerobic glycolysis and protein for energy. So you're topping up the tank a little bit. It's not a lot, maybe 20 to 40%. And I think the 40% would be the vegans and vegetarians who start wow, really low. So if you're an omnivore, you're only going to get about 20%. Carnivore, yeah. you're probably already there. But the vegans, we've shown, you know, they have about 
a significant reduction compared to an omnivore. So they're going to re respond a lot more. Percentage. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, so you've got this creatine and creatine phosphate. Now I'm, I'm getting sort of nitty gritty on this, but yeah. So yeah, basically you've got more creatine phosphate than creatine in the muscle. Yeah. 66% to free mm -hmm. creatine is about 33. Yeah. Exactly. And then when you supplement, you don't actually keep that 60. If anything, you get a little bit of an increase in creatine phosphate yeah. and a greater increase in creatine. Free right. creatine, correct. So the yeah. total pool mm -hmm. kind of goes up by about 20%. And exactly. then we say of oh, that 20, 20 to 30 is fossil creatine. Yeah. All right. Now, now what I wanted to do, and I didn't want to glaze, not glaze over, skip over what you said. So there's, there's, there's sort of two sides to this, maybe more. Is, is the, the thing we're saying, like during a 100-meter sprint, if, if the creatine phosphate's running out after six seconds and you can have a you know 20% more, or maybe even 40%, then maybe you'll last seven seconds. And and then you, you'll slow down. So you should slow down less. That's the thing that people don't realize. 100-meter sprint, right. the creatine phosphate runs out and you're having to rely more and more on anaerobic glycolysis, right. you actually start to slow down. So you'll slow down. So that's one side of it. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, and I didn't want to, you know, I want to get back to that, is the repeated sprints, yeah? So mm -hmm. maybe... You just talk about that because people don't necessarily think that during the recovery, you know, you're getting the creatine phosphate and right. et cetera. So maybe just talk about that um, as well. Yeah. So the interesting thing with creatine, very similar to a red blood cell, is that uh, creatine is anaerobic or we think of it, but the recovery comes from the mitochondria. So my, some people have heard about the shuttling of ATP from the mitochondria to the cytosol. That's what creatine is helping as well, increase that shuttling um, capacity. So as we're resting in between sprints or sets, and we're breathing oxygen, the mitochondria is working very quickly to regenerate ATP. And of course, creatine will help shuttle uh, that from the ATP or sort of the mitochondria to the cytosol where actinomycin and, and the cross bridge cycles uh, occur. So it's actually speeding up that shuttle. And that's why we think repeated muscle contractions can benefit from creatine and the recovery from contractions to get you ready for the next subsequent bout. I agree. Perfect. All right. So so just let me check on that one. So I know, again, Paul Greenhalf has, has done this nice NMR stuff. Other people have as well. So have they actually shown when you create in supplement that when you do the, so you do your sprint or your mm -hmm. high intensity exercise, you're creating phosphate basically goes down to zero. And then you can use NMR to look at the resynthesis of the creatine phosphate. And indeed that's actually used to look at the aerobic. This is the thing I don't want to confuse people. It's actually one way you want to look at, you know, how, what is your mitochondrial capacity like? How good right. are you actually using aerobic uh, metabolism is to look at how quickly your creatine phosphate is resynthesized during the recovery. Now, are you saying if you look at NMR, you can actually see it's resynthesized quicker when they've. Um... Yeah. The theory is that if it, if just say you're not on creatine and it takes three to five minutes after about to resynthesize it naturally, the theory is that it could be sped up with creatine supplementation because you have an increase in intramuscular creatine pool and or shuttling. So that's one of the main theories. It could help speed up recovery after each set or contraction. Has it been shown that, you know? I believe so. Oh, for sure. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sorry. When you said theory, I was like, maybe. Okay. Now the other thing is, so if you think about, okay, now we're going to get to this, but I guess one of the main things we know about creating supplementation is it, is it can have uh, benefits for resistance training. Is that fair to say that, that if you look at all the different events yeah um, 95 percent seem to be resistance training or weight training based yeah yes okay so if you think about that we go okay is that because they can train harder you know because as we said so you know how you said one one rep 
you won't mm-hmm. use up all your creatine phosphate. So creatine supplementation probably won't have much effect. But, you know, if you're doing 10, 15 reps, then it, it makes sense that you the creatine phosphate might be running out. So then that might allow enable you to train harder. But also you said you've got the recovery. Mm-hmm. So then you go to the next set and you might be able to push harder as well. So again, it gets a bit complicated, but, but you tend to end up doing better when you do creatine with resistance training. I'm just wondering how much of that, because you've got all these variables, right? Can you train, can you actually do that one rep, that one set better? Can you recover better so you can do the next set better? Right. And can you actually train harder as well? So then you can you can back up. So I, I want you, it's quite a lot, a lot of stuff there, but yeah. if you can unpackage that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the main outcomes what we often see in experimental research or anecdotal is people say their training volume, wet, uh, weight by reps by set go up each session or sorry, over time. So it, if you do a study, we'll often see that people on creatine just lifted or perform more uh, exercise capacity. And I think that's something that for your viewers, they know, but you can take creatine alone and nothing's going to happen. The whole driver behind creatine, primarily from a muscle and or bone perspective, is the mechanical signaling of resistance training. Um, the whole theory is the more stimuli to the muscle, that'll stimulate cellular hydration, satellite cells. We'll talk about all that, the mTOR mm-hmm. pathway. But if you take creatine on its own, it's probably going to have a minimal effect to the muscle because it needs the mechanical stimuli. So yes, if you put in the effort in the gym, you know, maybe you have more cellular energy to lift a little bit heavier weight or eco to a couple more reps over time, that could increase training volume. And we think that's a main driving force from a muscle perspective. Okay. So, so during that actual session, so you go to the gym yep. and you'll just feel better. And mm-hmm. you'll be able to do put squeeze out a, a rep or two more or do another set. We're not talking about recovery. So I just want to make sure we're clear. We're not talking about recovery as as in like, oh, two days later, you'll feel better feel better. Are we talking about recovery between sets and during the actual session? So both. You, you actually get a faster recovery from a fossil creatine perspective after every set. And mm-hmm. now we're actually starting to see if the uh, the workout was intense enough, you can get a decrease in inflammatory cytokines, which are good and bad, but mm-hmm. after the session, some individuals say they have enhanced recovery, um, not so much muscle damage, but in- improved recovery after the session that may allow them to train the next day. Or for the athletes, what if you're splitting it up in the morning and evening? That might allow you to recover even uh, from a glycogen perspective a little bit easier on as well. So again, to your point, it's after every set or sprint, mm-hmm. whatever it is, and allowing increased recovery between the next subsequent workout. Okay, great. All right. So I guess I guess I'm I'm starting to think, oh, you know, I, even I should be taking this stuff. So let's just <laughs> make sure we're clear on this. Um, in terms of of who should be taking it. So I now I'm want to get back to the vegetarians, I, I guess, because um, that's interesting. I, I don't, and to be honest, I wasn't aware that was one of your early studies. So why did you tell us again? Uh, why the vegetarians are low, lower on average, yeah. and maybe if you can break it down to vegans and vegetarians, and I, and and again, I often say, well, people often say vegetarian isn't a vegetarian. You can be a healthy vegetarian. I often say how Oreos. We're not definitely not promoting Oreos. Uh, a vegan, right? So it doesn't. Right. You can right. you can be vegan and eat, and only eat Oreos. Right. So why don't you just I, I guess. Talk about um, yeah, ve- vegetarianism, veganism, and the effects on of on muscle creatine 
Yeah, well, so when it comes to muscle creatine, both are going to be combined. The, the reason being is if you do not eat dairy or eggs, it, it doesn't matter because creatine is only going to be found in the muscle fiber of the animal. So okay. you consider vegetarian and vegan together. And even okay. those who are emphasizing a plant-based diet, the reason that we think they respond very favorably to supplementation is to that point. They're not eating any dietary creatine. And so when you supplement the muscle with this metabolite, uh, they do trap it in the muscle. So when creatine gets in the muscle, it's locked in, it's very uh, phosphorylated and they really respond. So their percent will go up at least 40%, if not more. And therefore that has been shown to translate or correlate into obviously an increase in muscle creatine, which can lead to improvements in strength, muscle mass and performance. Um, so Pete, the main thing that determines your response to creatine supplementation is your baseline or initial creatine stores. Um, mm -hmm. So a, a, a vegan or vegetarian would respond very well. That's also why we think older adults, primarily in the lower limbs respond so well. There is evidence that those muscles atrophy um, as we get older, type two muscle fibers specifically. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why older adults seem to respond so well to supplementation. Uh, they may have low creatine in their diet, activity levels, but there is some changes in muscle morphology that we think primarily explain that. Okay. Now, I'm just wondering about that. So you, did, you mentioned earlier, and it makes sense, that, mm -hmm. that if you're not doing weight training, just taking creatine, increasing your creatine phosphate levels won't really do anything. But yeah. are you saying if you're, uh, if you're older and you have atrophied muscles, just taking the creatine itself without the weight training can have some benefits on the muscle? Is that what you're saying? Uh, not really any muscle effects, although there's about five that have been published worldwide who have given creatine without exercise and shown improvements from a neuromuscular and strength performance in older adults. So I can't say there's no evidence, but the vast majority suggests that doesn't matter how old you are, you need that mechanical stimuli from exercise at a high exactly. intensity to cause it. But there are a few studies that have looked at a high dose creatine without exercise compared mm -hmm. to placebo, and there has been some functionality and muscle performance benefits. So I can't say there's no uh, evidence to support that, but by far 95 to 99% would show that exercise first, creatine may give a small favorable effect. Okay. All right. So I guess I'm wondering about mechanisms here. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you mentioned mTOR and I, we'll, we'll try and walk people through this stuff yeah. a little bit, but I'm just wondering, uh, and then, well, I guess then when we, we'll get to it later, like how you can have effects without the supplementation, but what... What are is a thought to be the mechanisms? So I know we've talked about if you've got more creatine phosphate, then you know you can you can um, last longer. But you know during a, a sprint, what are the mechanisms they're finding in in muscle? Can you actually pick up you know greater protein synthesis rates yeah. or greater signaling? Yes, yeah, so it's a very multifactorial theory. So a couple of things. The main driver is if you have an increase in high energy phosphate metabolism, that could allow the individual to do more work. But there is some evidence, and it's primarily in young adults or rodents. So that's really important to uh, uh, put forth. But the main mechanisms is that it can speed up calcium reuptake into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So the theory there was that it can actually increase or decrease muscle relaxation time. It has been shown to stimulate glycogen kinetics and some stimulation in GLUT4. But when it gets to the muscle, it seems that where it's linked to sodium, it'll drag water in from an osmotic uh, standpoint, and it sort of swells the, the cell or the plasma membrane. And by doing that, if you're putting more fluid into the organelle area, 
It has been shown minimally uh, from a scientific perspective, but it has been shown to stimulate transcription factors involved in DNA uh, to RNA, um, satellite cells, which we can talk about. It's been shown to increase insulin-like growth factor. And now here's something that a lot of people probably don't know. It's only ever been shown to increase protein kinases in the mTOR pathway. Creatine has never been shown. It's been shown to fail multiple times at directly increasing protein synthesis. So this is an important distinction. Whey protein, casein, that increases the rates of protein synthesis directly. Creatine mm -hmm. does not. It may increase muscle mass by a plethora of other mechanisms, but it also has anti-catabolic effects. There's good evidence to suggest it decreases protein breakdown and it has some anti-inflammatory properties. So I think that's kind of where the mechanisms stand. Um, but the most established, obviously, is increasing high-energy phosphate metabolism. Okay, so there's a lot, a lot of stuff there, I guess. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're. There's no doubt that you increase the creatine phosphate, but more thinking about yeah, the 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 actual mechanisms that then transfer to increases in muscle mass and etc. So, and as you're saying, it's, it's a bit unclear. You can't pick up changes in protein synthesis, right? And and do you pick up? Um, so you mentioned M, maybe if we can just explain things a bit more as we go along. So what's considered almost the master regulator. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. So it's, it's, it's kind of like mTOR. Mm -hmm. It's like a step-by-step -step process. So the theory, if you do a step-by-step, -step, it's water would come in with creatine that would activate insulin-like growth factor, which is a main anabolic growth factor, we think. And that, of course, turns on transcription factors and satellite cells. And of course, everybody thought, well, if satellite cells are increased, there's a greater capacity for the myonuclear domain. They can actually donate their nucleus for greater capacity for protein synthesis. Um, but that only seemed to turn on some of these proteins in the mammalian target of rapamycin or the, the master governor of muscle protein synthesis, mTOR. But a lot of molecular researchers will suggest that when you measure protein kinases, as you would know, mm -hmm. mTOR, it's a snapshot. You know, you got to look yeah. at multiple transition. And, and just because mTOR got turned on once, does that really correlate to an increase in muscle mass? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't think so. It's very similar to the argument with acute hormones. Um, so creatine sort of turns on a lot of things of, involved in the muscle protein synthetic pathway. And I think over time, weeks and weeks of training, that's probably what's helping increase muscle mass. Yeah. Now, what I'm wondering here is the the old, you know, classic. Is it is it just because they're training harder? So when they do these studies with and without creatine, and then they do resistance training, for example, resistance exercise, do they match the training? You know, like is it is it just because things get turned on because they've done more training, or is it yes. because the creatine is intrinsically doing something? Yeah, so creatine without exercise has a minimal to no effect on any of those protein kinases. No, sorry, sorry. I'm saying if they do the same. So if you do the same resistance, because that's the thing when you right. when you look at creatine increasing supplementation, increasing strength. I, sorry to cut you off there. To, to, I'm not talking about not doing any exercise. I'm talking about when they look at the effect of uh, creatine supplementation on mTOR activation or protein synthesis. Do they do the same exercise? So do they do the same? 10 reps, the same weight, et cetera, or is it they're looking at it during a training study and they've actually done more training on the creatine? To both, yeah. They always compare it to a, a, like a, a matched placebo group who would be just doing the resistance training to see the greater stimuli effect. There's been some cellular data. Mark Turnipolsky's lab has looked at the okay. gene expression just from creatine by itself, uh, but the upregulation is synergistic with exercise. 
Yeah, sorry, sorry. So you're saying they match it. So they do the same exact 10 reps, same weight, even though they feel like they can squeeze one more out. Yeah. No, usually um, they, the they would go to fatigue unless it's a, a specific program, like where the program was three sets of 10. But you're right. The whole idea is maybe to enhance volume. And how do you do that? You either put on weight and do mm -hmm. more reps or vice versa. Okay, so I guess that's the that's the problem then. Because if mm -hmm. you're trying to see, does creatine increase um, muscle mass during weight training by turning on protein synthesis or by activating mTOR more or whatever, my, my feeling is it's important that they do the exact the same exercise. Uh, if they're doing a little bit more, right. then obviously it would turn it on. So do you know? Yeah, uh, and, and that's an important uh, distinction because usually compared to placebo, you see a really nice progression of weeks and weeks of training where the people technically on creatine uh, got either bigger, stronger, or faster, and they actually could lift more load for more reps, and therefore their training volume went up. And that's usually one of the main things is like, wow, your training volume went up on creatine. That probably explains a lot of the adaptations, and I totally agree with that. Yeah, so it's a bit tricky to, to when you when you look at mechanisms. Now, I, said, it's, I can't help thinking about, we were talking off here, a study I did like 20 years ago, I never published it. And I think that's that's part of the thinking. And you can see I haven't, I'm still thinking like that. What I was thinking at the time was, you know, how much of uh, the fact that you do get bigger and stronger with creatine supplementation is because they're training more. So I was mm -hmm. interested to see if the effect of creatine per se. And, and also at that time, there was talk about like you said about how you get water drawn into the cell yes. and, and whether that would stimulate protein synthesis on its own. I think it was a paper by Ingwell or something. Yep, yep, and, yep. Yeah. And they, so I, maybe if you can just address that again, and then I'll just say what I was going to get at. So oh, anyway, what we did is say we did minus one week. Yeah. We did, uh, we did strength and body composition with DEXA. And then we gave them either creatine or placebo for a week. And then we did the strength and body composition again. So you could see, is there effect of just yeah. the creatine without weight yeah. training? Yeah. And then we did 10 weeks of training mm -hmm. in there, either on creatine or yeah. placebo. And it's a bit of, I won't bore people, but um, basically when you do four groups like we did, right. and you've got these multiple time points, because we also looked at 10 weeks of training and then we yeah. looked at five weeks. So you had minus one week, zero, five weeks, 10 weeks. It's hard to get significant. So yeah. basically it's still sitting in the drawer you know, you got to publish it. That's a good study. Really good design. Yeah. I know. Well, interestingly, well, I shouldn't say I know, but thank you. Um, anyway, that but was sorry, interesting. I like that design because it's the first study to control volume to see actually, is it the creative exactly. or training? And to be honest, that never happens. Like we usually want people to progress. Exactly. So that's an interesting model. And that would answer, is it the creatine 100% or is it the training? Because if you match volume, then mm. you'll know the mechanisms of creatine by itself. So that's a really elegant design. I like that. Well, thank you. Because <laughs> it's funny, there's a guy There's a guy who follows me on social media and he's been great. Well, actually, his name's David Propst. And yes, I think you yes, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and he's made these little videos, some reason things. Yeah. And I was asking, because I literally haven't looked at the literature and it's 20 years later. Okay. And he said, as far as he knows, because he's massively into creatine, his, his username is creatine something. And he said, as far as he knows, it hasn't been done. Anyway, we're not talking about my studies, but the point was there that that was saying maybe the maybe just the, the creatine on itself would would cause this, you know, swelling of the cells and stimulate protein synthesis, right? So, but but we found basically no effect of just taking yes. uh, sorry, of of doing creatine without the resistance training. But I, I couldn't believe it. I was quite amazed. But even though they did, we made sure they did exactly the same training, so 10 yeah. weeks. 
And I had a, a master's student on it and he kept saying, oh, they feel better. They want to do more. And I was like, no, no, the whole point is don't let them do more. And it's yes. like, but we want to see if they get bigger and stronger. Yeah. And I said, people have already shown that. We know that they get bigger and stronger. Yeah. And, I and want to know. Is, yeah. And we matched exactly. It was exactly to the kilogram that the right. groups were exactly the same. And guess what? Uh, what would you predict? What would you predict? Probably no difference. No. They got yeah. bigger and stronger on the creative. No, so they we, did. We, that we we don't really need to publish this. So I was quite surprised, yeah. but again with the significance and you know whatever. But yeah. basically, it was quite noticeable yeah. that they they actually got bigger and stronger on the creatine, even though we matched it to the exact kilogram. So that's, that's super why interesting because I would think the without the, the if the training was uh, matched, then you would speculate how much water retention or self swelling was caused. The creatine was causing that anabolic environment to go up. Uh, without exercise, we think anytime you measure fat-free mass or lean mass is primarily water um, because there's no stimuli for protein synthesis. So mm. that's a, you, you should really publish that. That's a really good Exactly, because that's the thing. Sorry, it's turning into my you know, my great study, which has never been published. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I think this is a good time to say to people, because <laughs> I actually set, saw like uh, 10 hours ago or something, you sent out someone's preprint. And yes. I want people to, to realize Yep. That and, and I know you know this, but I want people to because it's got to the point during COVID, there'd be all this arguing and stuff. Oh, there's a preprint. Excuse me, a preprint means it hasn't been peer reviewed or whatever. Right. So don't take notice of anything I'm saying about my yep. great study because yep. it has not been peer reviewed. And indeed, the stats we're having some problem, you know, as I said, because there's so many groups, so many time right. points, it's hard to show the differences. So, you know what? So I could whack that out there. Like, literally, we've written it. I could whack that out there now. And say here's a preprint, and people would be like, "Oh, okay, so creating on its own." All over social media. Like, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, we haven't published it yet. Published so it. it's a good point to say, you know what? Don't go with what I'm saying now because it hasn't been published, and yeah. indeed, we're having trouble with, with showing significance. And that, yeah. you know, it it needs to be done yeah. properly. And, and, that, and that brings up the social media idea nowadays. It's gotten kind of scary what's being promoted or talked about and if, if it's not justified by evidence-based research it can be very dangerous what some of these products are out there and if it's been shown to do something in a mouse and never shown in a human you can't correlate it from a, a practicality standpoint and um, sometimes I get a, quite nervous actually every day you turn on Twitter or Instagram and it's yeah it, it's it's yeah I'm uh, actually a bit, a bit worried now I've said all that so I just want to make it very clear <laughs> That that study is not published, and and as I said, um, a large reason for that is that even though it looks like there was differences, it wasn't significant. So you know, I don't want people thinking if you take creatine and do weights, and you, even if you match the training, you don't train hard. Because I mean, people would be like, "Great, I don't even have to train. I don't even have to train hard." Yeah, yeah, exactly, so that, exactly. That, that's total total bollocks. So I, I, I want to almost retract all that. So anyway, but what my point was there that is that we were wondering if the creatine by itself. Mm -hmm. because of that osmotic effect you mentioned with sodium, et cetera, causes cell swelling and turns on protein synthesis. Now, we didn't measure that, but but you're saying that the cell swelling and then uh, having effects and, uh, is, is part of the mechanism. So is is that has that been shown or is that like a theory? And, and why, therefore, wouldn't it happen if you just took the creatine? Because you should still get the cell swelling, right? without doing the resistance training. That's right. So the theory is if it does uh, swell the cell, and, and uh, Mark Tarnopolsky's lab has shown that balsam way back in Ingwell, you brought up that was in the myosin and actin heavy chain, but that was in chick embryos. So that's a little bit different. But um, if, the, if the creatine does cause swelling, 
it still needs the mechanical stimuli to turn over the muscle protein pathways of synthesis and breakdown to really cause the repair process to occur. Um, so some of the genes can be turned on without exercise, but they really become synergistic okay. with the mechanical okay. stimuli. But oh. that also begs the question, what about intense aerobic exercise? Doesn't that cause muscle contractions? We don't know. Maybe it doesn't cause as much mechanical stimuli for hypertrophy or strength mm -hmm. gains. Maybe it causes the Krebs cycle to really enhance. Um, and, and that's something that's sort of the theory is emerging over time. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, different stimuli, different, yes. different. Okay. Yeah. And it's I actually totally like different the, signaling. Yeah. yeah. I actually like the sound because it makes sense because you know how muscle Mm -hmm. um is is energy use a lot of energy so if yes. you know we, we talk about it use it or lose it because if you're arnold schwarzenegger you've got these massive muscles and you stop right. stop exercising i mean i know there's more recent bodybuilders um then then why would you keep it because there's so much energy to keep it right yes. so you lose it and it, yep. it kind of makes sense why would you if you're taking creatine mm -hmm. you know why would you want to increase your muscle if you're not actually there's no signal you know you're not needing more muscle right. muscle's not you know, when you're doing resistance exercise or, or manual labor or something, the muscle's like, oh, crap, I need to get bigger and stronger because I've got yeah. to do stuff. It doesn't so, make sense to even. Exactly. Know. So physical inactivity will reduce your muscle creatine stores, but no performing exercise doesn't increase them. It just helps maintain it. So that's an interesting thing that if you're inactive or you have muscle atrophy, there's probably a logical thing that your creatine stores will come down because your muscle's not using it. Uh, like I like your analogy, lose it or uh, use it or lose it. Mm -hmm. The brain may be a little bit different, but that's so in its infancy. We have no idea yet on the the uh, efficacy uh, of many of those aspects. But from a skeletal muscle perspective, we're pretty confident the exercise is the main thing, and creatine may be a very small adjunct to it. Okay, so I'm very keen to talk about the brain stuff, but I still want to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got to get my little make sure I'm clear on everything and, mm -hmm. and move on from that. Now, what I wanted to talk about as well is I see a lot of studies and you mentioned earlier, you know, five grams, 10 grams. Yeah. The classic stuff with Paul Greenhalf showed, I thought pretty clearly that you do like five days of 20 grams a day. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you only need two to three grams. So, so you get it up and yep. then you, you know, you're 20, 20%, maybe 40% and vegetarians, vegans, and then two to three grams to keep it there. And I remember saying there'd be all these, I won't say names of products, but the companies, but I'd see them saying, I'll take 10 grams a day and everything. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Because, you know, you could say they've been nice by not saying 20 grams for the first five days, but obviously if you take 10 grams a day or five grams a day, yeah. you're going to use more product. Yeah. Why do, why do people talk about five grams, 10 grams? Like, don't yeah. you know what I mean? In my opinion, there's a few things. So the, the studies you mentioned, Roger Harris, Eric Holtman, Paul Greenough, they elegantly showed back in the 90s when before Instagram and all that social media, that 20 grams a day for five to seven days completely saturates, fills up your, your skeletal muscles. But that's what's often left on uh, told is that that maximal saturation rate occurred after two to three days. They just did it a couple extra days to make sure they were make doing sure. it. So mm -hmm. if you're taking 20 grams a day, and that's about, you know, almost 10 times more than we're naturally synthesizing per day, that totally saturates your muscle. And then since we metabolize about one to three grams a day, it kind of makes sense. And Eric Holtman clearly showed that three or two to three grams a day will maintain those stores. So if you're an athlete and you you load with creatine for 20 grams a day and then go down to two to three days, high five yourself, no issues. That's uh, way more than enough. I think the five gram dose uh, came into light because the theory was, well, wait, 
if Eric showed that three grams a day in addition to your diet can increase creatine stores in a month, and we're metabolizing through creatinine about one to three grams, if you look at the difference, having a surplus of three is where five grams a day seems to come from. And the other uh, justification for that is Roger Harris clearly showed that a single five gram dose elevated creatine in the blood and repeated five gram dosages maintained it. And, and of course, Paul did the same thing. So that's kind of where the evidence showed two to three to five grams a day with or without the loading phase from a skeletal muscle perspective is, is more than enough. Um, and they even showed that will get you to saturation levels in about a month. All right. So, so you would still say, cause I, my feeling is why not just do that way? But you're saying do five is, is safe. You do a loading and then you say five when you probably only need two or three. Yeah. So if you're doing a loading and you do five, you can rest assured that some may trickle into your bone and, and, and brain. Um, some will be going down the, the toilet per se, but I think some people say five grams is just easy. It's like half a teaspoon. Um, so, and there's no detrimental or adverse effects from that dose whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. The other theory though has been postulated is that the larger you are, you may have more transporters. So very similar to the GLUE4, if you mm -hmm. put on more muscle mass or larger. So there was one of the best uh, creatine uh, papers by Anna Persky. He's put out a few in the late 2000 or early 2000s. The theory was the larger you are, you may actually require a higher dosage. So our lab is primarily looked at a relative dose, 0 0.1 gram per kilogram. Mm. So if you're 70 kilograms, that's seven grams a day. If you're 100 kilograms, like a lineman, you're taking 10. We've seen that to be very effective and safe as well. The question is, is that any better than two to five grams a day or higher? We've never done that dosing study, so it's hard to, to speculate. Um, Funny yeah. how I like that because it's it's exactly the same I think it was us, but it may have been someone before us, but it, it, with carbohydrate ingestion, it was always yeah. in fluid. Everyone was doing like this, uh, 250 mils every 15 minutes. And it, and then we had these, at one stage, we had a 100 kilogram participant and we had a 50 kilogram participant. And we're giving them both 250 mils every every 15 minutes during prolonged exercise. So it doesn't make sense. So I think it was us the first time. So we said, why don't we do three, 3.5 mils per kilogram Yep. per 15 minutes to make it 250 mils every 15 minutes. And then, you know, now it's, it's, it's happening with creatine, which makes sense because again, if you've got very different sized people, yeah. why would you give them all the same amount? And, I and that, something that, and we used to think that the skeletal muscle had a ceiling on average is 140 to 160 millimoles or, or think of grams. But there mm -hmm. was one st subject in Roger Harris's classic study that went to about 185. So more mm. times than not, we say most people, you know, we always throw out these numbers. And then obviously there's this one outlier on the graph. It's very clear in figure four from 1992. And he goes up to 185 millimoles. So it just goes to show that there's a lot of variability. Some individuals can actually take in more creatine at a higher capacity. But if you're 250 pounds compared to a hundred pound person, my guess is that person can metabolize or utilize more creatine. Uh, it's kind of similar when you start coffee and you're on a small coffee. And now if you're a chronic coffee drinker, you need a lot more to get that same stimulating effect to the receptor. Um, we don't know if that's the case, but these dosing studies need to be done. And, and that would be very important. Yeah, I'm very glad you keep saying Roger Harris and, and Eric Holt. Oh, it's my sure. bad. I keep saying Paul Greenhalf. It, it's Paul Greenhalf is often the first author, but these guys and Roger Harris was the first oh. study. So it's great. Good on you. So um, 
Now, what I wanted to say as well was um, creating transport. It was something I wanted to mention earlier. We actually did a study with um, Robin Murphy years ago mm-hmm. on that, and um, it was her study. And there was there was a bit of a hoo-ha because it was the wrong protein and things like that. But um, basically, I haven't followed that literature. My my feeling at the time was um, that the when you create in supplement, you would actually downregulate mm-hmm. your creating transporters. Is that is that been shown or? 100% correct. So it's upregulated when you're putting more creatine in, but just like anything, when the muscle becomes full, uh, there's evidence that the transporter can be downregulated. Therefore, you may need a little bit more or be more consistent with a regular dose to just maintain what's being metabolized. But uh, there is evidence that the, the transporter can be saturated or the expression is downregulated over time. Okay, so I guess then people start thinking about, oh, you know, can you trick it, trick it by mm-hmm. you know not taking any for a few days and things like that. Yeah. What what are people thinking about that? Yeah, the the study that needs to be done, they ask me all the time, is cycling better than continuous? And there's no evidence to suggest mm-hmm. otherwise. But to that point, there was a lot of people thought, do I downregulate my natural production with creatine? And Mark Turnipolsky clearly showed that's not the case in humans. There was an animal study that did show it a super physiological amount. But if you take creatine, you're not going to downregulate your mRNA transporter. Um, but the, the transporter to the muscle, and we have no clue about the brain or bone, um, can be downregulated with continuous chronic high dosages when you don't need it. And that's probably why it may be more sensitive to a little bit if you need it. So again, a small daily dose. Um, and again, that's from a skeletal muscle perspective. Yeah, and people don't have to worry about that, right? They go, oh, my creatine transport is probably down-regulated, so I need to take more and more. The whole point is it's because your muscle's already saturated. Yep. It doesn't need any more. So I don't think, you know, people don't have to think, oh, I guess you need to keep upping and upping my dose. No, they you know. just need a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, the other thing I think I saw was um, that females tend to have higher muscle creatine. Is that right? And so this is an area of controversy. So I, I want to be very clear here. There's minimal evidence to suggest that females actually have lower or higher intramuscular creatine stores. Some studies suggest they have lower. Some actually say they have higher. And that led to the speculation. Maybe that's one of the main reasons some females don't respond as well. They don't have that greater room for capacity. Um, but it depends on age, sex, habitual dietary intake. It's not really any different than males when you look at the totality of studies. But there are some that show differences. And there's also some studies that show uh, aging males and younger males have differences in, in creatine. At the end of the day, I don't think those differences are very meaningful or large. Uh, both uh, sexes do respond to creatine. Um, mm-hmm. However, when we get into an older population, we do see that older females, for some reason, don't seem to stimulate lean tissue mass or reduce measures of protein breakdown nearly the same as males. The only logical reason would be the cessation of estrogen, but I don't think it's the differences in intramuscular creatine to start with. I think it's probably having to do more with estrogen uh, factors there because estrogen decreases you know, inflammation, oxidative stress. And when you take it away from the body, that's probably why. Um, But females respond very favorably to creatine. um, And the evidence showing that they have impaired metabolism, uh, I'm not really buying it. Okay. Okay. Now, just, I I realized I've kind of glossed over this a little bit. So when we talk about creatine supplementation during resistant training, increasing muscle mass and strength, how much are we talking about there? Are we um, over 10, if you do a 10 week training study or something, how much are you look? Yes. At? 
So the problem is we never measure muscle. This is the big thing nowadays. We measure lean mass or fat-free mass. And at best, I think whatever the measure you're getting, 50% might be dry muscle at best. So if we say it went up by lean mass, we never know if it's water, bone, connective tissue, but we theorize 50% would be muscle. The, the percent increase is very small. We've shown in meta-analysis uh, in older and younger individuals with training, maybe three kilograms. So it's not a lot. Um, however, uh, strength. Oh, sorry, is this over how long? Sorry, on average. So over... the, yeah, we always like to uh, talk about meta analysis. So that could be from seven to uh, 104 weeks is the longest time period. Mm -hmm. But on average, I think if you're doing a six or eight to 10 week tra training study, you may put on a couple kilograms from a whole body perspective. Um, muscle thickness regionally uh, has been shown to go up uh, a few centimeters. Uh, but strength is the one that seems to go up by about 20%. So that's something that's really important for older adults. I think strength by far is more important than any of the measures of lean mass that we're seeing. That's interesting. I had, I had a guest, I had a guest on, it was a uh, Jeremy Lenicky. We we're talking about blood flow restriction and, and yeah. resistance exercise. And he was saying, I can't remember exactly that, that strength and, and muscle mass weren't going hand in hand. Have you got thoughts on that? Yeah, his blood flow restriction uh, uh, research is very elegant, and he's shown that uh, a number of times. He's actually shown that hypertrophy might go up before uh, strength, and, and that kind of contrasts everything from Digby Sale to Duncan McDougall way back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. But the theory is that now there's also evidence in the sarcopenia uh, community that muscle mass is a poor predictor of functionality and strength. Um, so I will agree. I think the emerging evidence is now showing that there is a relationship. There's no doubt. But I don't think it's nearly as impactful or correlated as we once theorized. And there's actually new evidence to suggest that they're they're not. So can you be strong without or with minimal muscle? Yes. Can you have muscle mass and not strong? Probably. But is it really muscle? So those, those are areas to, to look at. That's and, true. And when mm -hmm. we go back to Wim DeRave's uh, podcast, I learned exactly. a lot from that. And, and Wim's exceptional. And, and, and Andy Galpin in, in California has also shown now that we don't even have type two X fibers. And of course you got to change mm. all your exercise phys teaching and, you know, we mm. have the gene for it, but it makes sense. The more contractions you do with oxidative capacity and blood flow, uh, we're actually getting rid of type two X fibers. And so now we're left with type one and two A. And I think some of that new uh, technology allowing us to mm. enhance our ability. I uh, just, why well, you love science, it's always changing and, cha and challenging the paradigms, which is great. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yes, that reminds me. Yeah. So Jeremy was saying, and I think again, it's it's the kind of thing. It it almost makes sense because Jeremy was saying you can get hypertrophy by not doing not much exercise if you've reduced your blood flow. But again, you, you think, well, if you're not actually doing that much exercise, then maybe it makes sense you wouldn't get that much stronger, you know, because there's like a different stimulus. And then also with uh, Morton Hostro, that I just mm -hmm. had on a couple of weeks ago, he was saying if you take beta agonists, so you know, like the Ventolin you can get increases in muscle mass even without doing resistance training, which I thought was amazing. Wow. But he was saying you don't get much strength. So again, yeah. it makes sense. If you've actually increased, if you've done like good, honest work mm -hmm. to increase your muscle mass and your and, and, and your strength, or, you know, it would make sense that they both get sort of bigger. But if, yeah. if you've done, if you sort of tricked it by taking these, you know, Ventolin, but you haven't actually done the exercise, it makes sense even if you get the increase in muscle. You won't yeah. get much stronger because you're not actually doing anything. Yeah. And again, going like the low load, high volume training. So they get the same hypertrophy with a lot of people still don't believe. But if you do low load or high load or blood flow restriction, just say if you get the same hypertrophy, 
there's a clear difference in strength. Strength. If you train with heavier weight, you get stronger. So you there again, there's evidence that it can't be completely correlated. There's a relationship, but there's big distinctions. Yeah. It makes sense, as you say. So if you do low, if you do like tons of volume but not much weight, it makes sense. You'll get you might get big, but you're not gonna get strong because you haven't had the stimulus to get strong. That's right. Exactly. And when we talk about strength, the, the proper definition of strength is one repetition. Right. Yes. So it makes sense if you're doing like 28, you know, 50 reps or something yeah. of a low weight, you're not going to get That's much right. better at doing one rep. Yeah. Now, what did you actually say? So to bring it back to creating, what did you say about creating that you're uh, in, in regards to that dissociation? What are you saying there? Regarding muscle mass and strength. So the, the yeah. middle... Yeah, so at best, you're going to put on a few kilograms of lean tissue or small amount of muscle thickness, but strength will go up. And I think it was about 20%. Uh, Eric Rawson and Jeff Volick put out a good review. It was about 20% increase in strength for creatine compared to about 8 to 12% for those on placebo. So the percent increase in strength is by far more important. Okay, I mean, I mean do we know why that is? The theory with strength is that if the muscle is being activated, it seems to stimulate or recycle calcium a little bit more. And then again, that brings in the neuromuscular system. Does creatine influence the axon, the myelin sheath, the neuromuscular uh, junction? We just don't know that. Okay. Now, I saw you put out uh, first author systematic review meta-analysis, finding that adults under 50 combination of resistance exercise and creatine is likely to produce a very small reduction in body fat percentage. Mm-hmm. without corresponding decrease. So what did you find there? If we start talking about, we've been talking about muscle, but with fat, et cetera. Yeah, we, we've looked at two populations, under 50 and, and above 50, and it's the mirroring effect. So creatine and resistance training basically has no effect on body fat or uh, absolute fat mass. It decreased percent body fat by less than 1%. So at the end of the day, it's it's clinically and meaningful uh, significance is, is question. Um, but a lot of people refrain from creatine because of the weight gain that can typically happen during just the loading phase. So a lot of people think, oh God, I'm putting on fat mass. And we wanted to see, is that true? And when we look at all the data, uh, primarily using DEXA or uh, bod pod or things like that, we didn't see any increase in fat mass. And we saw a very, very minimal decrease. So we conclude as scientists, uh, creatine has no influence on body fat in humans. Yep, yep. So, So the weight is just water retention. Ideally, or or fluctuations in mass or whichever it is. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about endurance exercise? So, because I've actually, um, we did a study years and years ago with endurance exercise and we found no effect on, so we did like, you know, submax exercise and then a performance bout and there was no effect of the creating supplementation, which is probably what you'd expect. You touched on it earlier, but but I feel like there's been a bit more studies with Mm -hmm. endurance training. Um, yeah, Maybe we put because, you know, you touched on the year. mitochondrial effects. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We put out a good review this year, uh, uh, a number of individuals looking at the effects on sport and aerobic performance. And if the sport encompasses some of the anaerobic sprints like swimming or soccer or skating, that seemed to have some potential with agility and or uh, recovery. Um, but the area uh, of interest was in long uh, duration aerobic exercise. So triathlon or extended marathon. And when those individuals consume creatine before the race, they had a huge reduction in cytokines. So tumor necrosis factor, alpha, interleukin-6 after the race compared to placebo. So although those cytokines are really important to stimulate the recovery and muscle protein synthetic pathway, chronic elevations may jeopardize recovery and accelerate or extend protein breakdown. And that seemed to cause an idea that creatine may be good for recovery 
more soul than performance when it comes to aerobic sports. Okay. Okay. Because, um, all right. Cause I saw there was something about the timing because at first I thought that's ridiculous. People were talking about, Oh, I'm going to have my creatine straight before exercise. I was like, why would you do that? Because you just want to, you know, we talked about the loading phase and all this stuff, yeah. but you're saying it may actually have anti-inflammatory effects. In some a uh, few studies uh, in aerobic individuals is shown to have some anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, the majority of that come from the animal model. There's a lot of studies that show no anti-inflammatory effects as well. So it, it has potential. Um, but when it came to the timing, so they just happen to give it to the individuals as they're preparing for the race. But when it gets to the timing of when you take creatine, we see no real reason that there's a, a specific time. The only theory is that Roger Harris's paper in 92 clearly showed that exercise or muscle contractions stimulated or augmented creatine into the muscle. So a lot of people says, oh, wow, I need to get creatine as soon as I can after my workout because blood flow is going and transport kinetics. But then you would argue, well, what if I took it before a workout? It's gone through the digestive system. Now it's in my blood when I'm actually working out. Would it get into my muscles greater? Uh, in the current body of literature, and there's only about five or six studies, uh, there's no difference. You can take creatine before, during, or after exercise. You can take it in the morning or evening. Uh, we're not seeing a timing issue whatsoever. You're saying Roger Harris did, though, in that initial study, is it right? Yeah, he's, he, what he showed is that exercise augmented creatine uptake so the theory is prior muscle contractions would stimulate greater uptake and maybe over time that could lead to an improvement in performance uh, but when we've compared post-exercise creatine to pre-exercise creatine we see no differences so okay. essentially so that's the timing not really a is thing. relevant yeah okay all right that's um interesting yeah i was gonna, I was gonna say well maybe it's the increased blood flow but yeah you're saying it's not really having an effect I, I think basically the only one out there is you know a carbohydrate intake post-exercise caffeine before we now know timing of protein is irrelevant timing of omega-3s exactly. is irrelevant like i think at the end of the day emphasize food first and 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 just go about your day and try to get through it yeah i think um luke van loon i'm dropping I'm, I'm you know plugging my own podcast which is probably fair enough uh made it very clear as well that um you know this and 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 um the window you know as as Stu Phillips yeah. said the, you know Stu Phillips said the window after exercise it's not it's not a window it's a garage door or something so it's almost like uh, and I want to get this to people uh, things end up being so complicated right people think oh I've got to do this before and this after I've got to do this during and I've got to have my protein every every five hours or three hours and whatever it is is it fair enough to say generally with these things even if you are supplementing with protein and you may not need to and if you're supplementing with creatine you may not need to just keep it simple you know like, well, like just yeah yeah a hundred percent because I think we're getting to your point you know, they're running to the locker room. Some people are plugging in a blender and they think they're going to deflate and waste a whole workout. At the end of the day, if you're getting a total daily amount of protein that you need, a total daily amount of creatine or essential fatty acids, emphasize food first, enjoy the meal with friends and family. If you need a supplement to get you that total daily amount, that's fine, but please don't worry about it. Like you can go home and enjoy your meal after a workout. Several hours later, you're going to respond well. At the end of it, I guess caffeine would be the only one because you kind of want that in the blood peaking before you do the work. It doesn't make any sense to have post-exercise caffeine. Mm -hmm. um, and most people enjoy a coffee or whatever to sort of get that jolt in the morning or before a workout. But the rest of it can be found in food. A serving of salmon has protein, omega-3s, creatine, calcium, and vitamin D. I mean, at the end mm -hmm. of it, I'm not sure how much more you need with vegetables and rice or whichever it is. So emphasize food. 
But for those who need a supplement, please note there's no timing effect. It's not going to be a magical cure. Okay. Just just thinking back again with the vegetarians, I meant to ask you this earlier. So based on what you said, that vegetarians slash vegans have lower muscle creatine, and we right. know that creatine phosphate is very important for sprint yes. and, and endurance tra- uh, and weight training, et cetera. So do you find that there's very few, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, vegetarians, vegans that are sprinters that are, because I know that in the, in the Tour de France, for mm. example, I actually happened to see on the SBS coverage here in Australia, they interviewed a chef. They did this thing. They interview like a, a chef every stage, and they'll say what food are they making in this region and whatever. And at one stage, they actually interviewed a chef for one of the pr- professional Tour de France teams, and said, "What sort of challenges do you have?" And he said, "Well, one of the challenges is, um, you know, the different foods people like, but also two of the eight cyclists we have are actually vegan." So he actually had two of the eight cyclists on that Tour de France team right. were vegan. I was like, wow, okay, that's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah. But I guess, are you saying that you wouldn't really expect to see many sprinters, many, um, you mm. know, assuming they're not supplementing, yeah, that, that actually a vegetarian? That's an excellent question. I've never thought of it. I, I don't, I, I guess in theory, if their muscles were only half full of creatine, they may not excel at the same level. But that's an interesting uh, question. I have to guess some world champion uh, sprinters are vegans, males and females. So that's an interesting question that mm. I don't have any uh, uh, science behind anything, but it's an interesting way to, to theorize it for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because you'd, you'd think that they would have, you know, we talked about down-regulating creatine transport. You'd think that if you weren't getting much, You've only got your endogenous production right. in your own body. You probably have creatine phosphate. Uh, sorry, the creatine transporter would be really elevated yeah. in the muscle because it wants more. Right. But but you know that when you do biopsies, you find that they are lower, so it's not lower. it's not enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. It'd be interesting yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now, um, sometimes I uh, actually sometimes I think oh, I should come over. When I'm interviewing people, I think oh, I should come because I'm kind of in this. I haven't really talked about it on the podcast, but I'm kind of in this. No man's land. Right? Three yeah. years ago, I, I took a package and I'm not working full time. I'm emeritus. And uh, I never planned to do that. Uh, it's, it's crazy how often I, I think, oh, I should come over and we should do the study. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering about at one stage, we so, sort of talked about not tricking the muscle. What was it? Cycling. So, yeah. um, you know, changing the creatine dose and maybe stopping for a few days. And I meant to say at that point, how long does it take to actually come down again? So if you stop supplementing. Yes, yeah, so the, the body of evidence, uh, again, uh, Eric Holtman uh, clearly showed this, and there was another, another study by Vandenberg, that in young individuals, it takes about 30 days once you're fully saturated to come back to pre-supplementation levels. So if you wanted to cycle it, fine, no problem. If you're uh, cycling off it and you want to maintain activity or eat salmon or, you know, seafood or red meat, that's going to help elevate as well. We think in the brain, it takes a little bit longer, about five to six weeks. And the theory there is maybe the blood brain barrier really stops creatine metabolism or being metabolized into the, into the bloodstream because it utilizes are very picky, but it takes about four weeks for muscle. And we theorize about five to six weeks in the brain. All right. Well, I'm itching, I'm itching to get to the brain. <laughs> don't, don't worry, we will get there. Um, I wanted, what I wanted to ask first was, is there any evidence of any side? So I know 20 years ago they were talking about the kidney and I yeah. think it was Portman's 
it was sh- sh- saying that there was no side effects. Yeah. Where are we at with that? So even if you take mega doses, is there any evidence of any side effects that you know? Yeah, uh, nothing's really changed. We just have more clinical trials uh, with uh, more data on liver and kidney enzymes as well as uh, complete blood counts. And I think our recent study uh, where we looked at uh, about 11 grams a day for two straight years in postmenopausal females might have the biggest weight because it was adequately powered, high sample size, and we measured liver and kidney enzymes annually, and there was no detrimental effects compared to placebo. So keep in mind, we gave a high dose for two straight years in a population whose organs may be susceptible to deterioration, and we saw no uh, um, detrimental effects from estimated GFR to creatinine to any of the liver or kidney enzymes. And then there's been study after study clearly showing that at normal recommended dosages, uh, creatine is metabolized to creatinine. Of course, that gives a lot of false positives when people go get their blood work because they need to tell their GP, I'm taking creatine, make sure hopefully the GP or nephrologist knows, well, that's going to be metabolized to creatinine. And pretty much any hospital around the world only uses the estimated uh, equation. And if you have high creatinine, that's going to say, oh, you have poor uh, kidney clearance. And nine times out of 10, that's Mm -hmm. not the case. It was just a supplement. So it alarms people. Um, But for anybody listening, if they are taking high amounts in the diet or supplementation, please make sure you tell your doctor you're on it because there's a good chance your creatinine levels will be higher. That's true. That's true. Okay. Good point. Okay. Now I am, as, as, as we know, itching to get into the brain and also okay. you've touched on bone. Yes. But just quickly, I guess, because we've been focusing on muscle and you touched on sarcopenia a little bit there. So why don't we just talk a little bit more about sarcopenia? What is sarcopenia first? And then, yeah. Yeah. It's a multifactorial condition. So now the emphasis is on, it's defined as the age-related reduction in strength or your ability to produce force, uh, muscle mass and functionality. So performing activities of daily living and, um, Pretty much anybody on the planet may be susceptible to it. I think exercises are, are sort of force field against it. And of course, dietary protein is right there as well. But older adults who are susceptible to frailty or taxia or inactivity will likely jeopardize or get an increase in sarcopenia. And that's catastrophic. That's being placed in long-term care facilities, um, very uh, prone to osteoporosis and, and frailty. Um, so resist. Absolutely. Yeah, greater force. Yeah. Yeah. And so resistance training and creatine has been shown to be a therapeutic intervention for older adults, primarily by improving strength, muscle mass, and functionality. The only area of concern is we've never really measured it in diagnosed sarcopenic adults. These are individuals in long-term care facilities or measuring the volunteer to make sure they have established sarcopenia. Um, More times than not, these are healthy adults free of disease. Uh, and that's why creatine and resistance training have been shown to be effective. I would be very interested in do a clinical uh, study where we take sarcopenic adults, put them on an intervention, and then maybe some of those individuals come back to pre-sarcopenic um, um, data, kind of like going from diabetes to pre-diabetes. That would have massive implications for the global healthcare system and, of course, to the individual themselves. But that's an area that we're trying to get government funding for. We've submitted grants for it. Um, and, and that's something hopefully we'll get funded down the road. Okay. But again, is it, is it the creatine plus resistance training? Cause you touched on the neuromuscular junction yeah. or something earlier. What, what, what were you saying there? And did they get, you know, just like younger people that they tend to get bigger 
more again, not bigger. Do they maintain their muscle more and get stronger with creatine plus resistance training versus resistance training alone? Yeah, and that's an excellent question. We speculate resistance training has to be there to be foundational. Um, that creatine, in addition to resistance training, will give a small greater effect. But by giving an older adult creatine without mechanical stimuli, that's not that's probably not going to overcome the anabolic resistance to exercise. That's probably not going to stimulate any of the major anabolic pathways. So my guess is creatine alone over time is not going to preserve muscle mass, just like it won't preserve bone mass unless you have that exercise component. Okay, great. All right, so why don't we talk about bone? Um, yep. Let's do it. Yeah. So oh, we know. A, let's move on from muscle at last. We've been we've been moving in that way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, a small body of research, and I've been fortunate to work with again Dr. Phil Chilibeck and, and kind of looking at uh, the effects of creatine on bone. And it was by chance because when you measure dexa, as you know, you get bone mineral density and content, lean tissue, and fat mass. And there was a cellular study done uh, about 20 years ago showing that osteoblast cells or the cells involved in putting calcium into new bone became very energized in the presence of uh, creatine. So the speculation was, wow, if a human would take creatine, would those osteoblast cells get energized and could that have any uh, bone building uh, effects? And so we sort of did a, a few proof of principle studies. Uh, actually, Mark Tarnopolsky uh, did one of the, the first studies in rodents, clearly showing that these rodents on a creatine-enriched diet improve bone mineral density in the spine. Um, and they measured that uh, through wet weight. So the theory was, wow, if the rodent could respond, maybe the human could as well. Mm. There's been a few studies now, but there's a clear distinction with the studies. If you take creatine without exercise, even up to two years, no effect to the bone. But if you combine creatine with resistance training and the lowest dose was eight grams all the way up to about uh, 11, um, you can get some small favorable effects to the skeleton. And this is primarily around the hip region in postmenopausal females. So it doesn't increase bone mineral density. All it's been shown is maybe it decreases the rate of bone mineral loss okay. and it increases bone geometric properties or makes the bone a little bit stronger. And I have to preface this with a little bit of caution. The amount of preservation or increase is very, very small. However, the individuals who were on placebo and exercise, they almost approached a clinically significant decrease. So at the end of the day, at best, creatine may help preserve bone integrity. That may help offset fracture uh, um, later on in life. It has some small anabolic effects to bone, but we're only seeing this primarily in postmenopausal females or those with the cessation of estrogen. In healthy males, we see that creatine decreases a marker of bone breakdown. This is NTL peptides, and it has a small favorable effect at increasing bone area. So both sexes do respond. It's very, very small, not nearly the same magnitude as muscle. Okay, because yeah, you did have a study. Was it two year study? Mm -hmm. Ten grams a day of creatine with exercise and postmenopausal women did not improve bone mineral density, but did enhance other markers of hip right. fracture. What what was that? What are the what are the markers of hip fracture risk? Yeah, we looked at buckling ratio, so the the amount of strain under or a load that would cause a fracture. Uh, creatine preserved that, but unfortunately, the females on placebo they got an increase in susceptibility to fracture from the buckling ratio. And the other one was sort of bone strength. Uh, creatine had a small increase compared to no change in placebo, so they did not even come close to a clinically significant mark. 
Uh, they didn't meet the standard deviation of the minimal amount detected to be significant, but they did show uh, some beneficial effects. So at the end of the day, all we can conclude is that creatine and, of course, resistance training may help preserve the skeleton. Um, but again, what about a population that isn't performing resistance training? They may be losing bone, and that's catastrophic. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's when you look at the you look at the fact that if you don't do it, you'll go down, and if you do do right. it, you go up, and it's, it's right. minimal. But when you look at the difference in the groups, it's yeah. It's and sadly, most of society is not even performing the recommended amount of physical activity, let alone uh, taking. Uh, 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 an adequate diet. So that's something we really got to try to get across the message. Please exercise. Uh, that's going to be the sort of the fountain of youth. Yep. Okay. Now, is that, is there any more on bone or do we think about the brain? Um, yeah, the, the bone area is kind of uh, at a standstill right now. Those studies take so long and they're so costly mm -hmm. to do because bone turns over very slowly, but as it stands right now, uh, a low dose of creatine without exercise will have probably no effect. Even a high dose with exercise will only have a small beneficial effect. But again, the key word there is beneficial for populations that may be susceptible. Yep. Okay. Now, early on, you said, um, when I said how much of an increase in muscle, oh, sorry, get back to muscle again, um, do you get with creatine during, with resistance training versus resistance training alone? You said we don't have good data because it's mainly uh, – but don't, don't people do MRI now um, to look at actual muscle? They um, do, but not a lot of researchers on creatine will do MRI studies. They'll do some biopsies, uh, not anymore. Now we've kind of got the fancy brain MRI, the MRS, to look at brain creatine content. That's kind of where most people's attention okay. is. But there are Perfect. some M MRI data out there and uh, PQCT data. Uh, we did one uh, with CT and showed that the muscle area went up. Uh, with creatine so that is very nice to complement the ultrasounds out there and the dexas and things like that right right that actually makes me feel a bit better about my 20 year old study because yeah, we only had dexas right. and i thought everyone's doing mri now yeah okay so let's talk about the brain um, okay so yeah you've touched on a couple of times about uh blood brain barrier and things yes. like that so if we if we sort of do the same with the muscle when we say okay does it get in yeah. you know how, how much gets in whatever what do we know about that and then maybe co cognitive function yeah. and things like that so the preface that our skeletal muscles act as a vacuum they suck up pretty much all the creatine they can unfortunately our brain says whoa we got to really protect the force field called the blood brain barrier and endothelial cells we're very selective to what gets in those astrocytes in the neural glia are very strong so the interesting thing with muscle compared to brain, the muscle does not make its own creatine, whereas the brain does. So the mm -hmm. enzymes that are responsible for making the creatine molecule mm -hmm. that are in the liver and kidney are also expressed in certain mm -hmm. parts of the brain. Um, but the brain also lacks transporters to allow creatine in. So you got three things mm -hmm. working against brain. It's the blood-brain barrier, the lack of transporters and astrocytes. It's only present in certain cells. And then, of course, the brain makes its own. So the brain might say, why do we need anything from the blood? Mm -hmm. You know, go to your muscle, go to your bone, whichever. However, there's new evidence and suggestions by uh, magnetic resonance spectroscopy that creatine can accumulate. It takes a long time and maybe a longer dosing pattern uh, to accumulate in the brain. Um, it does not nearly the same magnitude as muscle. It's about half. So if muscle mm. will go up by about 20 to 40%, we're only seeing in the limited body of research, maybe brain creatine content going up by about 10 to 20%. Um, so it is limited. And then the question comes, well, what if the brain doesn't even need, will they take it up? So I think it comes down to the pathophysiology of the person or the condition. 
I think a healthy brain making its own creatine, you're not going to notice any effects. A compromised brain, concussion, depression, anxiety, uh, that's the areas we see some efficacy with creatine supplementation. Uh, not a lot, but there is promise where the brain is stressed, it may respond to supplementation or need more coming in. So, okay. And what did you say about the blood-brain barrier? It can get through there or it can't? Oh. Yeah, it's very resistant. So the endothelial cells in the blood-brain barrier, those astrocytes don't have the transporter. The blood-brain barrier is resistant to uptake and it only seems to take it in by half. So when you look at the really good studies that have used NMR uh, uh, from Brazil or Norway, those studies in, in healthy individuals only increase creatine content by about 10 to 20% compared to about 20 to 40% in muscle. So it's a smaller amount. Um, that's why speculation, higher doses, dosages may be needed and or longer supplementation protocols. Okay. Now we've, you know, we've talked about muscle and how muscle we've tried to emphasize that it's not the creatine per se, it's the creatine phosphate probably, which right. is <laughs> important for the contraction. Although I guess the total creatine might help with the recovery, right. but in the brain, you think, well, why does it need creatine? You know, it's not like anaerobic metabolism yeah. or whatever. So what's, yeah. what's going on there? And I saw something about possible neurotransmitter. Yeah, yeah, that's new too, speculate. So the brain, what is it, about 2% of, of body mass, but it uses 20% of our total energy. And it mm. uses just the same pathways, fossil creatine to ADP, buffers hydrogen, of course, makes ATP. So during times of metabolic stress, sleep deprivation, writing grants, academia, you said you're jet lagged, uh, uh, concussion, mm. depression. One of the common denominators when they look at the magnet is these, when the brain is stressed, it has a reduction in resting brain creatine stores. So just like muscle, maybe the brain could suck up and take in more creatine when it's metabolically compromised. And that's where the best evidence, it's limited, but that seems to be where the best evidence has been shown to have some effectiveness for creatine. Um, but in the healthy brain, um, the theory about cognition, we've published a few studies now not showing any benefit, even at 20 grams a day, probably because the brain says, I don't need it. It's very healthy and it's not compromised. But that also leads to speculation. What populations may have compromised creatine, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's? We need long-term randomized control trials. There's evidence in mice and rodents who are predisposed to Alzheimer's, or of course, I put out a tweet today that there's a new preprint looking at uh, traumatic brain injury and creatine may help decrease oxidative stress. Uh, but we need long-term trials in humans with different dosages. And then you also need to look at the gray matter versus white matter, different areas of the brain where it's being taken up. So I think the big focal point for the, the next 50 years, if not longer on creatine will probably be from the neck up. Okay. And, <laughs> and sorry, so do we know creatine, um, so in humans, um, do we know creatine levels are um, reduced in disease states and things, or is that based on sort of mouse studies? Or yeah, primarily mouse, but uh, in the human studies with depression and anxiety, the creatine baseline stores are a little bit more compromised. Um, and then when we look at Parkinson's, Huntington's, all that, we just still don't have the sample sizes. There's no studies in Alzheimer's. There's one potentially coming out. But again, animal data is good from a mechanistic standpoint, but we got to get it into the human trial because that could be so massively important to have any uh, beneficial effect to neurological diseases. Some studies show some benefits, uh, primarily in muscular dystrophy in, in young boys. Uh, there's a couple studies in children with concussion, but again, those children may have a great repair process already because they're growing and healthy. 
What about the adult who's already on the tail end in the compromised area? That's the area we really need to focus on. Okay. And when you're saying they're measuring creatine in the brain, is it creatine phosphate using NMR or? They're, they're measuring total creatine and then they can measure PCR and free creatine as well. And the variability there can be minus. We've actually seen studies where they take creatine supplementation and it reduces for some reason. But on average, it can go from anywhere about minus 4% up to about 11%. So the variability is quite high. Okay. And, and is there this idea that it could be a neurotransmitter? Is it, that has been postulated. It meets all the aspects of a transmitter. For The, the, the theory is that you know it can speed up um, neuromuscular transmission. It acts as a, as a neurotransmitter released from the axon to the neuromuscular junction. But until it's been replicated in human trials over time, in theory, it can be a transmitter. It meets all the criteria. Um, but until it does its transmitting activity, uh, we're not really sure with that. And before I forget, one of the big things with muscle and brain is Yes, we talked about vegans. There's a huge difference between muscle creatine and in vegans and omnivores. But now there's good evidence to suggest that the brain doesn't respond differently from a vegan and omnivore diet. So vegans and omnivores may have the same level of creatine in the brain. It's very interesting. Okay. Well, that's, that's good, I guess, yeah, for them if it is, if yeah. it is a factor. Yeah. Um, okay. So just to summarize on the on the brain. So I, I saw you had a tweet. More, more evidence that habitual dietary intake of creatine likely does not influence brain function measures in young right. adults. And then here, just I think it was just yesterday, great summary of the high variability in brain creatine response to different doses across right. populations by Eric Rawson. Additional paper on long COVID showing four grams over six months increased brain creatine levels. So I guess where does this sort of leave us? Are you saying that there isn't much evidence that it affects cognition, brain function that we know of? but there's variability in the brain. What, where did, where, what's the sort of takeaway on this? Yeah, so the current summary, if I could, is that if you're a young, healthy individual, you're probably not going to get any cognitive or memory uh, benefits. We've seen a little bit of promise in older adults and those that have compromised brain bioenergetics, uh, such as concussion or even some older adults, but sleep deprivation or hypoxia seem to have some better evidence from an effect size. Um, so if the brain is not compromised, you're sleeping well, you're, you know, living well, um, you're probably not going to get or notice any of the effects. The theory is the more compromised the brain is, um, working uh, graveyard shift overnight, sleep deprivation, jet lag, hypoxia, that's probably where it might have some benefit. And the big potential is neurophysiological conditions, Parkinson's, Huntington's, Lou Gehrig's disease, okay. Alzheimer's. Uh, those have a common denominator in theory, that they have reduced brain bioenergetics. Okay, so sometimes when I'm looking at Twitter and things, you, you get the feeling that, that it's almost like everyone should be taking creatine, yeah? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, so, for example, I don't take, take any creatine supplementation, but I do go to the gym. I've been going to the gym. We've just come back from Copenhagen where I was in the gym, and I've got to think yeah. about joining up here. Um, if someone's young, healthy, not going to the gym, not 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 exercising that much, Yes, no. And then if you don't have Alzheimer's, you think you might have Alzheimer's, increased risk for Alzheimer's. Like, yeah. What sort of population? My feeling is yeah. not everyone should needs to be taking creatine, but you could yeah, almost no. get that feeling from talking, yeah. you know, oh, I'm vegetarian, I need to take creatine. Yeah. I'm going to the yeah. gym, I need to take creatine. My mother's has Alzheimer's, I'm at greater risk, I need to take creatine. Like, what do you suggest on this? Yeah, no, that's an, a, a very interesting point because uh, people say I come across as salesman. I could probably smell uh, snow to a Canadian. And 
And as a full disclosure, I sit on some uh, company boards that produce creatine. And of course, that doesn't influence any of the evidence-based research. That's really important. Whatever we're discussing today is based on science. And and of course, on Twitter, it seems like creatine is, is going to save the world. Uh, it seems like it has no uh, downside and it can sort of do everything. And, and it has always the potential to do certain things. But to your question, a young, healthy individual that's sleeping well, they're not going to get any benefit from creatine, especially if they're they're not working out. I think in, in select populations that have inborn creatine deficiencies, vegans and vegetarians that are not consuming creatine, or if you have any uh, metabolic stressors, uh, COVID came to mind, depression, anxiety, any uh, uh, mental health issues, could creatine provide any benefit? I'm buying it if it does, because I think nowadays in society, uh, we're so metabolically stressed and stress as a society. But please note, if it does benefit you, it's going to be very, very small. And it may only be overcoming a natural deficit from your human physiology. I don't think you're going to be taking creatine and suddenly wake up and say, I don't need to sleep for a week. I'm running around. That's not the case. It may help. The mechanism in the brain is decreasing infl inflammation and oxidative stress. Um but there's good evidence in older adults. It can improve some aspects of health in young adults. And, and there's evidence in, of course, now you're back in Australia. Stacey Ellery, Ellery is now purporting that it can have uh, some benefits to the developing fetus and, and pregnancy. And that's an area that's emerging and a lot of caution needs to be there. In children, I think there's some preliminary evidence. So I always say there's, in theory, there's maybe no one on the planet that may not benefit. And I use the word may. Um, you can get it through your diet. You're naturally producing it. And at the end of the day, it's up to the person to determine if they need it or not. And, and for most people, they don't. Okay. Yeah. I was just thinking about the, the vegetarians slash vegans. I keep mm -hmm. getting back to this, maybe because my wife's vegetarian yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm pretty much vegetarian because, yeah. you know, she does most of the cooking and I should be doing more cooking. Yes. Okay. Um, basically, I'm wondering, you said that vegans and veg vegetarians looks like they have normal brain creatine levels. Yes. So if you're a vegetarian or a vegan that's not exercising and not worried about trying to get, you know, one more kilogram of muscle mass with your resistance training, we know that it's not going to do anything to your muscle if you're not right. resistance training. So if you're a vegetarian or vegan that's not actually doing resistance training or sprinter, is there any rationale to take it? And they're healthy? And they're healthy, yeah. Yeah, uh, I doubted it would even increase cognitive effects because I'm not. I would not see in that population any reason to speculate the brain is compromised. Um, so those individuals, uh, bone is not going to respond without the mechanical load if they're not exercising. My guess is they probably would not utilize the supplement, especially. Yeah, see, it sounds like that. That's a population that doesn't need it. Even though um, what I'm trying to get at is. Again, it just doesn't feel right to me. I'm not a big fan of supplements. Yeah. I think anyone that's watched the podcast will know that. And indeed, I get I get offers from amino acid companies and things yeah. Yeah. to to actually uh, right. plug their their product, and I say no because I've had Stu Phillips on yeah. and Luke Van Loon on saying yeah. you don't need you know. So um, it just to me, almost in, just in, intrinsically or something, I just feel like you know. Again, we've done so well for all these yes. years without creatine. Yeah. Surely, you know, we don't need to be taking creatine. And the other thing I wonder about, sorry, I'm not I'm not dismissing anything you said. It yeah, all yeah, makes yeah. sense. And I'm actually a fan. I've done, like I said, I did the study and I was amazed that it does look like it's having positive effects. I guess I, I wondered, is anything, I know there's no side effects in terms of looking at the kidney and the liver. Right. But, you know, just, just because we're all, we're beautifully in homeostasis, we're beautifully balanced. 
is in, you know, it seems like if you're throwing a whole bunch of one um, molecule mm-hmm. into the body, it must throw out the balance of some other things. But is there no evidence for that? I'm just We're being a devil's seeing- advocate here. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not seeing any uh, from uh, an excretion standpoint. So that's a really good point. We're only looking at the excretion standpoint. We're not seeing any strain on the cardiovascular system or blood, blood uh, platelets or blood cells or uh, liver or kidney enzymes. Um, now, the question is, are we going to have any detrimental effects in the brain tissue? That's an area we haven't even got to. I mean, that's like, you know, a decade away and no one's doing a brain biopsy or a bone biopsy to see the effects that creatine has over time, but, you know, it hydrates the, the body. We're not seeing any uh, uh, detrimental effects from a whole complete count. Of course, we do see GI tract issues and some uh, acute stressors during the loading phase. So we can't say, no, there's absolutely not. We, we do see that uh, when people take a, a high dose for about five to seven days. Um, and that's why a lot of studies don't use the loading phase anymore, because that's just usually for the athletes and things oh, like I that. See, I see. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you look at the dose for bone, well, geez, we've already now doubled it compared to muscle. And then the brain, the theory is you need higher dose to get in there. So I think that's where that 10 grams or more uh, came about. Muscle is low, but those other tissues that only get less than 5% going in, that's the big thing. 95% go to your muscle. Uh, trickling amount will go to those other areas. So it's sort of looked at as a total body supplement, but look at the vegetarians in, in the world. And I know a few, they're extremely healthy, extremely fit. They work out great sleep, no adverse effects. So at the end of the day, to your point, does a vegan or vegetarian need creatine? No, the brain traps it in and they're producing about one to three grams a day. And maybe that's all they need. So at the end of the day, um, they live a long, healthy, productive life. Um, do they, if they want to take supplement, will they get a greater response? Probably. Um, do they mm-hmm. need it? The answer is always no. no it, it all makes sense. I'm not giving creating a hard time. And yeah. indeed, I just saw my next point yeah. was um, <laughs> nature reviews. In adipose tissue, creatine controls mm-hmm. thermogenic respiration and loss of this metabolite impairs whole body energy expenditure, leading to obesity. So now they're going to say, I'm plugging this thing and uh, maybe getting money. We also cover the various roles that creating metabolism has on cancer cell survival, which you touched on, and the mm-hmm. function of the immune system. All right. So now I'm actually you know, going the other way and saying, well, yes. hang on, is it also affecting uh, you know, obesity? Do you know much about that? I know it's not your area, but. So that was the the uh, uh, the sort of the motivation for the fat mass meta-analysis. And that was primarily done in, in uh, there was a, a human study actually done and then in rodents as well. So it increases thermogenesis or energy expenditure. And of course, with the things, the drivers, maybe if muscle mass went up, goes up, it also has some direct effects. Uh, going to the immune system, that's an area of really promise and primary uh, interest for me. It has a lot of anti-inflammatory or anti-catabolic effects, primarily shown in, in rodents, but there is some human da- uh, data as well. Um, so there's a lot of potential from a whole body, an anabolic or anti-catabolic effect. Um, and that's probably why, to your point, um, when you go on social media, um, people think this is like the Holy Grail. It's this white, boring powder that's sort of got a life of its own uh, <laughs> recently, probably because the bone and brain seems new. Uh, it goes back to the protein. We're pretty confident we're running out of areas to look at with protein, and uh, we think we have a good idea with that. Uh, creatine is is was there. It was very boring for about 20 years because we thought we knew everything it did, and then all of a sudden there's population yeah, exactly. that seems to have a, a mm-hmm. little bit more, and um, it's a roller coaster. And, and now with the brain and focus on bone and maybe um, um, the immune system, um, mm-hmm. I'm on a, a paper with long COVID. It's starting to have some really interesting uh, promise for 
specific conditions. And here it is, you know, a boring nutrient that we're naturally producing is found in red meat and seafood. Um, mm -hmm. Or you could take a boring white powder or now it's probably in candies and, and gummies and things like that. And um, it's is starting this? to have some promise, but I really want to emphasize 99% of any benefits someone's going to get is based on the exercise component, stimulating mm -hmm. uh, the magic of creatine. Yeah. Actually, so so just back to that nature review. So you saying that that even though they'd said you know it may have promise for reducing obesity, et cetera, you didn't find that in your meta-analysis? No, we saw a less than I think it was one percent body fat and less than 0.5 kilogram reduction in, in body fat in healthy individuals. So over time, is it going to be an anti-obesity um, um, compound? Absolutely not. And that's even with resistance training. Now, mm. people might say, what if we went on a low calorie diet, added in aerobic exercise and resistance training? We don't know. That's a great study design. And that'll probably be looked at down the road. We also don't know, can creatine rescue the low protein intake of some populations? In other words, if you're on a low protein amount, the RDA, and you take creatine, could that have some Comp, uh, compensating effects. We don't know that as well. So there's a lot of potential uh, areas of research we're interested in. So how would it do? What what were you thinking there? How would it do that? So creatine can be anti-catabolic. It has been shown to decrease protein breakdown. So okay. if you're not getting okay. enough protein, um, maybe that's going to help preserve the integrity of the muscle. We just don't know that yet. Yeah, it was interesting. You did you did say that. I did I did hear that earlier on, and I thought, oh, that's interesting because most studies they don't they they see that protein, for example, has effects on protein synthesis, but not yes. so much on breakdown. Right. But you're saying creatine, you're actually finding, if anything, the other way around. Yeah. Um, Mark's group uh, with Johnny Parisi showed a whole body leucine. Oxidation was reduced on creatine. And we've shown a, a marker three methylhistine has been reduced on creatine as well. So those are surrogate whole body markers, but at least it showed there is potential to decrease protein catabolism. It may not be myofibular, but it's at least showing some preservation effect and then you flip it, protein increases myofibular protein synthesis, but creatine hasn't been yet. So maybe just a longer study needs to be done or more snapshots with the biopsy, but that's something that we're thinking of doing. That's interesting. Now you've mentioned caffeine a couple yep. of times, but under different contexts, hmm. but somewhere, I don't know where I, you see these things on Twitter or, or somewhere, someone said something about avoiding, avoid, should you avoid taking caffeine and creatine together? What was the- yeah, It was, was probably me. Yeah, it was oh, probably sorry. me. So, okay. so Peter Hespel, who you would know, probably did mm -hmm. the best study. And he was the one that sort of laid the foundation why caffeine and creatine play tug of war at the sarcoplasm. Oh, I remember that now. I remember yeah, that it now. was a really good study where he clearly mm -hmm. showed that uh, um, um, creatine will basically cause calcium to be taken back in, but caffeine likes to release it. And when you take both, they oppose one another. So that's why it jeopardized muscle relaxation time. And then Vandenberg study out of uh, Europe also showed the same thing. So there was some cellular data suggesting they play tug of war with calcium flux. And maybe it's not uh, advised to take calcium or sorry, creatine and caffeine together. Now, the dose of, of caffeine was about two to 300 milligrams. So that's going to be a large coffee. Um, can you put creatine in coffee and drink it quickly? I'm sure you can. I mean, the dose of, of, of caffeine in, in a coffee is small. However, we don't know the, the minimal or maximal dose that would interfere with it. And then there's been studies, Roger Harris, uh, of course, thought about um, the GI tract irritation when you combine the two. So we did a small study. It was a really underpowered study, but it clearly showed that caffeine powder and creatine powder did not perform as well as creatine alone. 
So it actually, when you look at the series of studies out there, there's only about six. Um, when you take creatine and caffeine over a long term, they may interfere with one another. So since we don't really have good evidence long term, I say, why not just split it up? Take your caffeine before your workout. And if you're going to take creatine, just take it at another time of the day. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now, just thinking then when you said about powders versus, it made me think about powders versus food. Is there any evidence? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we want people to be eating food if yeah. possible. Because, yeah. you know, you're getting all sorts of other things that, are, that you're that in the food, that not just yes. the straight powder. And if anything, that's more natural. Yeah. Is there any evidence if you're getting your three grams or five grams or whatever it is from creating powder versus um, food, yeah. if you get different effects? Yeah, there's not. Um, it, it's the the reason being is if we said, okay, let's do a study with creatine powder versus salmon, for example. Well, God, we don't know the anabolic effects. Did it come from the protein, the omega-3s or, or the synergistic mm. effect? Uh, so we don't. We do know there is some denaturation of creatine to creatinine with heat. So if you're cooking the food and charbroiling it on the barbecue, you're probably going to be degrading some of the creatine uh, compared to drinking it in a solution or putting in something at, at a lower temperature. But that study has never been done. The only one that resembles it is Roger Harrison in around the year 2000 looked at the effects of solution versus meat versus creatine in a lozage. And the solution was superior uh, to even meat and an extract. So that's why I think a lot of people mix up their powder and put it in a solution or whichever and just drink it. Okay, that's interesting. Now, I want to go to some some Twitter questions here. We've actually had a pile come through, um, but one was actually, I don't know, it, was, it fits with what you said earlier about coffee. So someone said, um, and what about, uh, yeah, so J- uh, Jacob or Jacob, it's Jacob in Denmark, but I don't know where he's from. I don't know if other, others are interested in this, but does, does the temperature of the fluid, so you touched on that, and he said, can I, you know, can I put in a coffee? So we just talked about that, right? Yeah, and I think at the end, Mm -hmm. yeah, so the temperature does denature the creatine molecule, but it would have to be for an extended period of time. And if coffee is the only way you're going to get creatine in and during your supplementation for consistency, I think it's acute. But the dose that's been shown in other studies is very high, much larger typically than coffee. Okay, yep. And then uh, this guy, Mark, um, he's sent a lot of questions as usual. He's he's great. Um, one of the ones he said, is there any other factors that might affect uh, creating up? So we talked about exercise. Are there other factors that might affect creating uptake? Yeah, there's there, another big one is insulin via carbohydrate. Um, but an, of course, a lot of people are, are a little uh, scared, if you will, um, of simple refined carbohydrates. Um, but protein, is very gluconeogenic. You get a lot of benefits from protein that can actually stimulate creatine uptake as well. So exercise and some macronutrients, primarily carbohydrate and protein can help augment that creatine into the muscle. Okay. So the insulin, do we know how that works? Very, the theory is very similar to GLUT4. So the theory was that more insulin would stimulate more transporters to the, the membrane and allow creatine to get in through its transporter, very similar to augmenting uh, GLUT4 translocation to the membrane. I wonder if it could also be because insulin stimulates the sodium potassium pump. And you That's said something exactly about right. sodium earlier. Yeah. yeah, so maybe yeah. it's something to do with that as well. And keep in mind, creatine is really close in proximity to all those pumps because you need ATP to be recycled. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so another one from Mark. Does it make a difference if you're doing uh, like a whole big volume? I guess it's just more of a stimulation. Is is the effect of hypertrophy and strength the same if you train three versus 10 versus 52 hard sets <laughs> uh, per muscle per week? Uh, with the creatine, is it? Do, you, do we know that sort of breakdown? 
No, that would be more of an volume perspective. As long as the creatine is is there to allow you to exercise higher, um, we we wouldn't we'd have to do a, a study to, to basically see the effects of volume or frequency of training. Yeah. And I guess you're saying just to tie it back with earlier. I guess you're saying the creatine would help you to do a greater volume. It would so the the seven sets or fifty two or whatever the uh, he was getting at. That's where it would probably show some benefit on recovery and or performance volume. Yeah. Uh, how do you reconcile the comp? This is Mark again. How do you reconcile the the conflicting evidence? So randomized controlled trials showing no effect versus epidemiological showing effect of creatine supplementation on improved cognition. I don't know if you. Uh... So what he means, I think, is that habitual dietary and Haynes data has shown that the more creatine in your diet or food has been correlated with positive aspects to cognition, memory, and and, and potentially antidepressive uh, ideas. Or flip it. People with low amounts of dietary creatine have heightened increases of depressive symptoms. Um, but those are epidemiological and subjective, whereas when we see randomized control trials, unfortunately, we just don't have those done in populations that are uh, clinically diagnosed with depression, anxiety, so on and so forth, or memory. Uh, larger scale uh, studies need to be done before we can extrapolate those data for sure. Okay, that's true. Okay, here's David. Um, with the multitude of demonstrated benefits of creatine, what benefits have surprised him and what did he think would show benefits but did not or not yet? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. You know what's probably surprised me is we've talked about this where creatine was boring and gone away and then all of a sudden it started to cause mm. benefits in other areas of the body that we just never speculated. It was always skeletal muscle. And I, I would say the surprise was its potential effects on bone, definitely brain and potentially the immune system. Um, so those are the, probably the surprises. Uh, sorry, what was the second mm -hmm. part? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and and has there been some uh, situations where it hasn't improved and you thought it would? I thought the timing would be very important with creatine. Uh, when I first was looking mm -hmm. at this, I was like, oh, from Roger's data, this will be by far post-exercise is going to be superior. Um, that's the area that I thought would pan out. And study after mm -hmm. study clearly shows it needs to accumulate. It's not like caffeine. And, and that's the area I would that yeah. comes to mind anyway. Yeah. Okay. Now, sometimes I ask this question as well is, uh, what are the controversies in the field? Because obviously I don't know, you know, every week it's a different, I don't know the literature well enough. Yeah. Is there controversies? Is there, is there anything, I guess what I'm saying is, is there anything that you've said today that if, if some other researcher might say, well, hang on a minute, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm sure people would argue against the, the, the caffeine, uh, the creatine argument there. And of course I, uh, I touched on why we theorize that. We just don't know. I think the look at other forms of creatine, there's a lot of companies that they're marketing different forms of creatine. Uh, at the end of the day, it has to be creatine. The body needs to recognize that creatine molecule for it to be effective. Um, but monohydrate is true and tested. It's the safest profile with that as well. Uh, but then you get in the areas where people swear that creatine causes baldness. And of course, you look at me and other researchers <laughs> and you're like, well, it's got to be go. true. And I've changed mm. the way I answer this. I used to always say we have no evidence to suggest that creatine causes baldness uh, based on that rugby study. Uh, but I also say, geez, you know what? The only way from a science perspective to answer that is we don't know. We've never had mm -hmm. a study ever, ever measure follicle loss or thinning. Um, the only way I can answer it is I've assessed well over a thousand people. Uh, half probably were on creatine. Not a single person has ever come to me and said my hair was thinning. Um, that's anecdotal, but it, it's the way to look at it. Of course, when they see me, they're like, well, there you go. 
Uh, it doesn't destroy your kidneys. Um, and, but the big one, I think, is the false positive with creatine supplementation and kidney failure. Uh, it does make creatinine, and that's why. So there's a lot of myths and misconceptions out there. It's not a miracle. It's not going to do everything that is on social media. Uh, when you look at the science, it has a small favorable effect if it's done correctly with exercise. Now, interestingly, we've, we've touched on quite a few times that taking creatine alone mm-hmm. won't do a whole bunch, won't put on muscle and strength. No. Do is that is that message out there? Like, are people do people know that? Do most people know that they've got to do the resistance training, or some people just taking it thinking they're going to get strong and big? Yeah, unfortunately, I think they think they can just take creatine like an anabolic steroid, and they're going to get effects. The only area we see some promise without exercise is the neck up, uh, but they're also performing activities of daily living, like daily contraction. So. Um, from a muscle bone perspective, we really think exercise needs to be there. We don't really know, does exercise need to be there for the brain effects? But there are a lot of people think this is like a Flintstone vitamin they can take and they're going to get all the benefits. I'm like, no, you got to put work into the track, the field, in the gym. And, mm. and then at the end of the day, this is going to give a small beneficial effect. So if you're making a cake, exercise is the cake. The icing is protein other macronutrients and maybe creatine provides a bit of sprinkles on top. Maybe (laughs) you're going to get one to 2% extra boost. Uh, But Mm. if you take away the exercise, nothing really matters. Yep. Okay. Now I think we've probably touched on this, but one, one thing I've started saying, asking is, um, you know, a large part of the reason I do this is I Mm -hmm. want to take on these influences that, you know, I want people to get their information from the research experts, not from the influencers. So I say, is there, is there something, you know, that annoys you in this regard that's on social media? But I think we've probably touched on that, right? Is there anything else that's sort of out Uh, there that's, that's annoying and you want to correct while you get the chance? Yeah. I think the, the danger of social media, I think social media is fantastic for getting uh, uh, information out there, but you got to be really careful about, who and what you're listening to. And we spend a lot of time doing research studies. They cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, thousands of research hours. Um, we typically publish papers that no one reads, except for now with social media, it can get out there. So please go to science. Your podcast is exceptional. I would highly recommend to come here. Thank you. The people you've had on here are, are exceptional. So evidence-based research is the first place. Uh, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, and the other thing is, I think I always want to give respect to the people who have laid the foundation and, and some of these nonsensical comments, the GOAT, the, the, the best creatine researchers out there. I like to use that as I talked about. I wouldn't even make a hockey team of creatine researchers uh-huh. if you go back to the infancy. And there's a lot of people out there that I admire and respect that have pretty much done all the research that we just use to adopt. And, and just because they're not on social media... Um, so I think a lot of people are, are very uh, um, um, spontaneous to give some of these acronyms. And uh, if I can contribute 1% to the scientific community with some research, uh, I'm more than happy. But the, the Theo Wallymans, the Turnipolskis, Paul Greenhalf, Bruno Gualiano, Chilebeck, Eric Rawson, Abby Smith-Ryan, Rich Kreider, like I can go on and on, Roger Harris, Holtman. Peter Hespel, all these people that Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are not on social media a lot, they are the best creatine researchers ever. There's probably 30 others that we don't have time to get. And if I could hold the water bottle on the bench, I'd be more than happy. So um, (laughs) I think think some of the foolishness that I hear about is is comical. Yeah. Well, maybe you're the creatine resurgence goat. 
or the messenger maybe i don't know <laughs> you know like 20 years later and then yeah, yeah. no i, I know you were doing stuff back then so that's not yeah it's not yeah. I, I'm, yeah, you are on the team don't worry okay so just to finish up um I'd, I'd like to finish up with some sort of bottom line takeaway mm -hmm. messages that you want people to get from this chat yes so one is that exercise is foundational Two, you produce creatine, you eat creatine, you can get some favorable effects from supplementation. It does not need a lot. Um, and the third biggest one is that creatine will only work if you put the effort in to get the results. Mm -hmm. And that's the exercise generally. That's the exercise. It's not a magic cure. Yeah. All right. But but I guess just to just to make sure we're clear on that. So that's in terms of muscle, but you're saying mm -hmm. from the from the neck up. It might be different. Right? It might be different if the brain is compromised. Creatine can have some favorable effects, but we need a lot more data with that as well. Great. Well, thank you very much. You're a wealth of knowledge on all this stuff, and 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 I've really liked how you've you've you know been on top of everything, but also over and over recognize the previous researchers. Yeah. So, but uh, your contribution is big as well. So thank you very <laughs> much for coming on. I wouldn't have asked you otherwise. Thanks yeah. for coming. Thanks on. so much. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Thank you. Okay. See you, mate. Bye bye. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.